0: Amen. All right, well, we're there in Isaiah chapter number 9, and of course, we are going through a brand new series we started last Sunday morning called The Christmas Spirit, and we are learning about the spirit of Christmas and how to get into the spirit of Christmas. And we started last week with this idea that as you think about Christmas and about the spirit of Christmas, you realize that there are some recurring themes when you think about Uh, Christmas or the attitude of Christmas. And of course, oftentimes when you're looking at Christmas decorations or putting up Christmas decorations, a lot of these themes are displayed in those decorations, things like joy, peace, hope, goodwill. These are words that come up a lot regarding Christmas and the spirit of Christmas. And what we are doing is we are studying from the Bible these different attitudes regarding christmas of course we're in the christmas season and we're learning about how to get into the christmas spirit you're there in isaiah chapter number nine and in verses number six and seven you find a passage of scripture that's often referred to during the christmas season because of the fact that it is a prophetic reference to the birth of the lord jesus christ in isaiah nine and verse six the bible says this for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. I want you to notice this little phrase at the end of verse number six, the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. And this morning I want to preach to you on the subject of the Spirit of Peace. And I want to speak on peace and the subject of peace from the Bible, because peace is something that is often referred to when we reference Christmas and we talk about the Christmas spirit. Here, one of the most famous Christmas passages is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, it tells us that He will be called, it gives us all these great titles, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God. And of course, that is a reference to deity, the everlasting Father. And then we see this phrase, the Prince of Peace. I want you to notice that the Bible calls Jesus the Prince of Peace, and when you see that word prince in the Bible, it is often when you and I think of the word prince, we think of it as a title of, of some sort of like a royal title. And the Bible definitely uses the word in that capacity. But oftentimes the word prince is simply used as a positional phrase meaning that it is the principle or the primary, the first. And here, though, Jesus is the prince of peace. I mean, we know that he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, he's the prince of peace. But the word prince there is actually a reference to the fact that he is the principal, or the first or the source or the beginning of peace. If you want peace, you must begin with the principle or principality or the prince of peace, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice there in verse number seven, the Bible says of the increase of his government. And this is, of course, a reference to the millennial reign and the, the not only in, in verse six, we have the first coming of Christ, the first advent. In verse seven, there's a reference to the second coming or the second advent of the increase of his government. Notice the words and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And I want you to understand that when it comes to peace, there is a connection between the Lord Jesus Christ and peace, He is the Prince of Peace which is why peace is a theme for the Christmas story because it's connected to Christ and to the birth of Christ. Now, you're there in Isaiah 9. I'd like you to go with me to the New Testament book of Luke, Luke chapter 2, if you would. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, Luke chapter number 2. And look down at verse number 10. Of course, Luke chapter 2 is the most famous passage regarding Christmas in the Bible. It is the most... Uh, specific or detailed account of the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2 and verse 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 2, 10. The Bible says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Remember we talked about joy last Sunday. Verse 11. Notice what he says. Notice how much this sounds like Isaiah 9, 6. For unto you is born this day. Isaiah 9, 6 begins, For unto us a child is born. Here the angel says uh, to the shepherds, For unto you, the prophet said unto us a child is born, because the prophet is speaking as part of the people unto whom Jesus is coming to. For unto us a child is born. The angel is speaking to human beings and saying, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Notice the words, And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Notice the emphasis on peace. Why? Because of the fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The word peace is defined as a state of tranquility, freedom from conflict, freedom from fighting, freedom from war, freedom from disturbance, freedom from disquieting or oppression. When we talk about peace, we are talking about a state in which we are not in conflict with others and we are not in conflict with anyone. Now, you're there, there in Luke. Go with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 15. If you're there in Luke, you're going to go past the book of John into the book of Acts and then into the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. And when it comes to peace, there are different things that you need to understand regarding the biblical teaching on peace. And this morning is going to be really a Bible study on the subject of peace and the theology of peace, what the Bible teaches about peace. And there are different headings in which you need to understand peace. And I'd like to give you three thoughts or three points this morning, three different headings regarding the subject of peace. And if you can write these down, I think that would be beneficial on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write some things down. And let's begin this morning with talking about the accepting of peace. The accepting of peace. Before, because in order to have peace, you first must accept peace, is what the Bible says. Now, when it comes to, and we've already talked about this a little bit, when it comes to peace, you must understand that there is no peace aside from the God of peace. You're there in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, look at verse 33. Notice the Bible says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The reason that there is no peace in this world, and isn't our world just absorbed with this idea of peace? I mean, when it comes to political leaders, what is the number one thing that they're always talking about? Peace peace in the Middle East. But let me tell you something, there will never be peace aside from God and aside from the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, when you can get the entire world together, all working together to get peace, and they can't have peace, it's because of the fact that they're missing the source of peace, which is God. The Bible says that He is the God of peace. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You're there in Romans 15, go to Romans chapter 16, just flip over one chapter romans 16 look at verse 20 notice again and we can look at a lot of passages like this i'm not going to take the time to do that i'm just going to show you a couple here romans 16 verse 20 notice the phrase again and the god of peace and the god of peace shall bruise satan under your feet shortly the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you amen so i want you to notice that there is no peace aside from the god of peace Peace comes from God. He is the source of peace. Jesus is God. He is the Prince of Peace. The the Bible says there in Isaiah 9, 6, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, you're there in Romans 16. Flip over to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. When it comes to this idea of accepting peace, we need to begin with the realization that God is a source of peace. There is no peace aside from the God of peace. But let me also say this. There is no real peace aside from the gospel of peace. The Bible refers to the gospel as the gospel of peace. Are you there in Romans 10? Look at verse 15. Romans 10, 15. "...and how shall they preach, except they be sent, as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach." Notice the words, "...the gospel of peace." This is not the only place in which the gospel is referred to as the gospel of peace. There's many other places. I'm not going to take the time to go to them because I've got other stuff I want to cover. But I want you to notice that the reference is the gospel of peace and bringing glad tidings of good things. It's the God of peace and it is the gospel of peace. There is no peace aside from the God of peace. There is no peace aside from the gospel of peace. Go to Romans chapter number 5. Romans 5. We're going to look at a lot of passages here in Romans. Romans talks a lot about this idea of peace, especially the idea of us accepting peace. You say, why? Well, because of the fact that in Romans 5 and verse 10, the Bible says this. I want you to notice the words. Romans 5, 10. For if, notice these words, when we were enemies. Now, the word enemy is a word opposite of the word peace. If you have enemies, you don't have peace. The whole point of having peace is that you don't have any enemies, is that you don't have any conflict, is that there is no battles, there's no war, there's no, there's no fighting going on. Here the Bible says, for if when we were enemies, see, what you need to understand is that before salvation, and I'm hoping you're saved this morning, before salvation, and for anyone out there who's not saved, before salvation, they were the enemies of God. They were at odds with God. The Bible says that the world is the enemy and is in enmity with God. The Bible says here, for if we, for if when we were enemies, notice what the Bible says, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Go to Romans 5 and verse 8, you're there in verse 10 just Look up a couple of verses, verse 8. Very famous verse in the Bible, Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You say, why is the gospel referred to as the gospel of peace? It's referred to as the gospel of peace because it is the gospel that makes peace between you and God, between me and God. Before salvation, we were at odds with God. We were enemies with God. But because of salvation, because of the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, now we can have peace with God. Look at verse 1, same chapter, Romans 5, verse 1. Notice how the chapter begins. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Notice what he says, therefore, being justified by faith, that's the gospel, that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, therefore, being justified by faith, notice the words, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you begin to talk about the subject of peace, you must begin with this idea of accepting peace. You cannot have peace without God, and you cannot have peace without the gospel of God, the gospel of peace. And you have to know this morning, and I hope you know this morning, that you have peace with God, that you're not the enemy of God, that you're not at odds with God, that you have accepted the gospel, you've believed, you're justified by faith, and as a result, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see why the world has no peace? We've got a bunch of unsaved people who are enemies, literally enemies, with the source of peace, God himself. So we have to begin. And I know it's simple and I don't want to dwell on it too much. But we have to begin with the gospel. You say, I want peace. Well, then get saved. Amen. I want peace and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ except the gift of the Prince of Peace. Because there is no peace aside from the God of Peace. And there is no peace aside from the Gospel of Peace. And you have to be able to say this, that you have peace with God. That you're not the enemy of God. That you have been reconciled unto God. And by the way, that's why the Bible says that our job as soul winners, our job is to go out and be soul winners. It's called the Ministry of Reconciliation. Why? Because there is a world out there that is at odds with God, against God, and our job is to bring the gospel of peace and reconcile them unto God, that they might be able to say that they have peace with God. So we see this idea of the accepting of peace. But then I want you to notice secondly this morning, you're there in Romans, go with me to 2 Corinthians if you would. You're going to go past 1 Corinthians and Second Corinthians. I've got three thoughts for you this morning, and I will spend the majority of my time on the second thought or the second point. The first point, I hope, is easy to understand. You must accept peace. You must accept the Prince of Peace. There is no peace aside from the God of Peace. There is no peace aside from the Gospel of Peace. We must be reconciled unto God so that we might be able to say that we have peace with God. But I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, not only the accepting of peace, But I'd like you to notice the extending of peace. The Bible teaches that we should endeavor to keep peace. Are you there in 2 Corinthians chapter 13? You were in Romans, past 1 Corinthians into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I want you to notice these verses. Look at verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Because this might seem like it's just a, a, a greeting or, or a farewell that he's giving here and there's just fluff here, but please understand this, there's nothing, there, nothing in the Bible is just fluff. Everything that's in the Bible is in there for a reason. And here Paul, yes, he is giving a farewell. He says, finally, brethren, farewell. He says, be perfect. And I've taught you this before and we talk a lot about it because it comes up a lot in the Bible. The word perfect in your King James Bible does not mean what you and I think of when we think of the word perfect, we think of something being flawless or being uh, without error. But that's not the word perfect. That's one definition of the word perfect. There's another definition for the word perfect, which is the one that's primarily used in our King James Bible and still used today in different uh, circumstances. And the word perfect means to be complete. When something is perfected, it is completed. It has become a whole. And here, Paul says, be perfect. He's looking at these Corinthian churches and he says, I want you to be whole. I want you to be complete. The idea when it comes to growth is that I want you to be mature. When someone is a baby, physically, they are not yet perfect. They have not yet completed their development. When they become a mature, grown adult now they are mature now they are complete now they are perfect here he says be perfect be of good comfort then notice these words be of one mind one mind whenever the apostle paul uses this idea of one mind it is an idea of unity in philippians he famously said that we should be striving together he talked about being of one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel he says i want you to be perfect I want you to be mature, I want you to be of good comfort, be of one mind, unity, and then notice the words, these these words, and here's the point that I'm making, and I'm going to make the point. These words are not just being randomly thrown in by the Apostle Paul. Oh yeah, that sounds good. Unity, uh, comfort, perfect, Those, those sound like spiritual words. He's using these words for a reason. He says, be perfect, be complete, be mature, be of good comfort, be of one mind, unity. Then he says this, live in peace. And notice what he says, live in peace and the God of love and peace. And notice, we just saw it in Romans, he's the God of peace. He's the God of love, the Bible says that God is love, meaning he's the source of love. But he's also the God of peace, meaning he's the source of peace. The God of love and peace shall be with you. Notice that Paul is telling us here that we should endeavor to keep the peace. He says, live in peace and the God of peace shall be with you. Don't you think that the God of peace would want we we as Christians to live in peace? Go to Ephesians. Keep your place. Do me a favor. Keep your place in 2 Corinthians if you would. We're going to come back to, no, I'm sorry, not 2 Corinthians. Go to Ephesians and keep your place in Ephesians. That's what I meant to say. Ephesians chapter 4. You're there in 2 Corinthians. You're going to go past Galatians into the book of Ephesians and then keep your place. Put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Ephesians because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Ephesians chapter 4. Notice these words. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Notice the word endeavoring. Endeavoring or endeavor. That word means to attempt, to try, to put in the effort, to do everything possible. He says, endeavoring, notice the words, to keep the unity. That's what he said in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, when he says one mind, he's referring to unity. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, notice the words, they're not just thrown in here randomly, they're here for a reason, in the bond of peace. He says, I want you to endeavor to keep. You say, keep what? Keep unity. I want you to endeavor to keep what? Keep what? Peace. Notice, peace should be something that bonds us together, the Bible says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want you to keep your place there in Ephesians, if you would, and go with me to the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Keep your place right there in Ephesians. We're going to come back to it and go to the very very first book in the Bible, the book of Matthew. Here's the thing about peace. There's so many verses in the Bible... Regarding peace, i can 't even preach them all in one sermon. I, I in preparation for this sermon, I went through and read every verse in the Bible that uses or has the word "peace." hundreds of verses, hundreds of times in the Bible, is the word "peace" being used, and i couldn 't even use them all. In fact, in this sermon, I had to just primarily force myself to focus primarily on the new testament. There's a couple of Old Testament verses we 're looking at, but primarily on the New Testament, because the Bible talks so much about this idea of peace now. I want you to go to Matthew 5, and while you go there, let me just read to you some verses that I'm not, I'm just going to read them to you, because I can't even have you take the time to turn there, because there's just so many, you go to Matthew chapter 5, let me read to you from Hebrews 12, 14, now please listen to this, because I want you to hear it, Hebrews 12, 14, notice what the Bible says with this idea, because we've accepted peace, right, we're saved. Lord willing, hopefully you're saved. If you're not saved, please don't leave here this morning without letting somebody show you from the Bible how you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven so that you can have peace with God. We want you to have that. We've accepted peace, but then the Bible says that once we've accepted peace, we must extend peace. You ever heard the phrase, extend the olive branch? It's an idea of peace. The olive branch is a uh, picture of peace, represents peace. We must extend peace. The Bible says that we should endeavor to keep peace. You go to Matthew 5. Let me read to you from Hebrews 12, 14. Here's what the Bible says. Follow peace with all men. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. The Bible says that you must follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, sometimes people get this and they say, well, you're not going to see the Lord without having, uh, without having peace. Is that some sort of work salvation? That is not the idea here. When the Bible says to see the Lord, it's the idea to know the Lord. The Bible says that the, the, the pure in heart shall see the Lord. Saying, so you want to see God? You want to know God? You want to see God and have God be real in your life? There's requirements. You must follow peace with all men and holiness. The Bible says that without which no man shall see the Lord, James 3.18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So I want the fruit of righteousness in my life. Okay, well, here's how you have the fruit. Fruit means what you produce. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace. Notice the words. You're not there, but just I want you to notice them as I read them. Of them that make peace. 1 Peter 3.11, the Bible says, let him eschew evil. The word eschew means to avoid or abstain. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek, I love this phrase. I love this, just this little phrase. I, I just love the Bible, how the Bible is worded. It's beautiful. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. The Bible telling you and I that we should eschew evil. We should avoid or abstain from evil, from that which will hurt us, from that which is wrong. We should do good. And then it says that we should seek peace and ensue it. The word ensue means to follow as a result or as the consequence of. Here's what the Bible is saying. As a result of your life and as a result of my life, as we mature and grow in our Christian life, what should result as a result of our lives is peace. What we, we, should, we should seek peace and ensue it. The idea is this, that you and I eschew evil, we do good, we seek peace, and then as a result, everywhere we go, we ensue peace. The result of our uh, influence there is the fact that there's peace. Let me ask you something. Is the result of your influence peace or conflict? Is the result of your presence in your home, your presence at your job, your presence at church, your presence with your family, with your friends, is the result of your presence peace or is it conflict? Because the Bible says that we should seek peace and then we should ensue it. But to ensue it is not something we do. We don't ensue peace. It is the outflow. It is the production. It is the result of our lives is peace. You've got to ask yourself the question. Are you there in Matthew 5? Look at verse 9. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. Notice what Jesus said. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. You say, Why does he say that he wants us to be peacemakers? Because if you eschew evil, do good, and seek peace, you will ensue it. You will make it. You will produce it. See, what we're learning in this Christmas spirit series, I hope this becomes very clear, is that these things in our lives are not things that just happen. People think, oh, I'll have joy in my life. If everything goes well, I'll have joy. The Bible does not teach that. You don't happen upon joy. You create it. You make it. You say, what about peace? You make it. You make peace in your life. If you have no peace in your life... You have nobody to blame but yourself. Because peace is something that should be ensued by us. We should be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Notice what the Bible says. For they shall be called the children of God. And again, people will take this out of context and say, see, you can't be saved without being a peacemaker. That's not what Jesus is teaching. What Jesus is teaching is this, that when you are a peacemaker, when you eschew evil and do good, when you seek peace and ensue it, people will look at you and say, there's a child of God. There's someone that's not bringing conflict, not bringing anger, not bringing problems, not bringing gossip, but bringing peace. When you and I live in such a way that we make peace, others will notice and say, that's a child of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. They live in such a way that people recognize them or acknowledge them as the children of God. See, it's one thing for you, and please understand this, or let me say it this way, please don't misunderstand this. I don't believe in lifestyle evangelism as a mode for reaching the world. The Bible teaches that the way that you and I are to reach the world with the gospel of peace is to go confront them, to go out and minister to them, and reconcile them unto God, all right? So our job is not to just live in such a way that people will look at us and ask the question, what must I do to be saved? No, no, no. Our job is to go. When it comes to the gospel, the word that comes up over and over and over again is go, go, go ye therefore. So I don't believe in lifestyle evangelism as a mode for reaching or accomplishing the Great Commission. But please know this. I do believe in lifestyle evangelism. I believe that your lifestyle should match your evangelism. And the point that I'm making is this. That you can live your life. Look, there is power. You can go to work and tell people, I'm a Christian. And then you go and get drunk on Friday night with all your co-workers. I go to Verity Baptist Church. And then you're listening in and laughing with all the dirty jokes around the water cooler. You can tell people you're a Christian all day long. And I hope you do tell people. I hope that if you tell people, you're also having a life that matches that testimony. But you know what's more powerful than telling somebody that you're a Christian? I think we should tell people we're Christians. I think we should confront people with the gospel. But you know what's more powerful is when people can watch you and just say, there's a Christian. I don't even know him. He works in another department. I just, But what I've seen of him, I can tell you, I don't know anything about him. I know something different about that guy. Something different about that gal. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. We should endeavor to make peace. Now, please, I want you to get this. And I'm going to spend some time on this because I want to make sure that I'm clear regarding this teaching. Jesus taught that we should be peacemakers. We should ensue it. He taught it primarily here in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. These three chapters are known as the Sermon on the Mount, a famous sermon that Jesus gave on the Mount. I often tell people the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on Spiritual Maturity. He begins, we're seeing here, this Beatitudes with his introduction. One of his introductory points is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Jesus taught that we should be peacemakers on the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Here's why. Because the Sermon on the Mount is the sermon of spiritual maturity. Please understand that. You want, you want to get into real Christianity? I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about salvation. Salvation is belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about discipleship, living the Christian life. Study Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and that's where the rubber hits the road. Oftentimes people think, because we teach, and I believe this, we teach and tell people, you need to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You need to read your Bible every day. You need to pray every day. You need to be a soul winner. You need to give. And people think, okay, well, if I hit those things, then that makes me a good Christian. No, no, no. That's the starting point. That's where we begin. We need you in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, soul winning, read your Bible every day, praying every day, and and giving just to get your heart to the place where we can actually begin to deal with real Christianity, which is what you find in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. So if you've been patting yourself on the back because you show up to all three services and go soul winning, hey, I'm thankful for that as a pastor, but please realize, according to God, we're unprofitable servants. We have only done that which is required of us. We have done our duty. Jesus taught that we should be peacemakers in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon on spiritual maturity. Why? Go back to Ephesians. Here's why. Because the measure of Christian maturity, I should say one of the measures, but one that is emphasized a lot in the Bible. One of the measures of Christian maturity is how well do you get along with others? Please don't miss that. You say, I'd I'd like to measure how mature my Christianity is. Well, if you can't even show up to church consistently, don't even ask the question, because you're not going to like the answer. But your church attendance and your Bible reading and your prayer and, and all of that is not a measurement of your maturity. Say, Pastor, why are you trying to get us to read nine chapters a day? in the month of January. It's not some magical formula if you can check these things off, your life will be better. I'm just hoping that while you're reading the nine chapters today to check them off, to meet a goal, something hits you. You learn something. The Holy Spirit of God helped you. You're like, whoa, I didn't, Matthew 5, that's amazing. Matthew 6, that's amazing. Matthew 7, I didn't know God taught these things. The measure of a Christian's maturity it's measured by their conflict level with others. You're there in Ephesians 4? Look at verse 11. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm going to expound to you right now verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, but I, I just, I'm just going to say this to you because I'm afraid I'm gonna, the wrong thing will come out, and if it comes out, I just want you to understand the context. These five verses, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, have haunted me. These verses have haunted me as a pastor in ministry. The Bible says, and he gave some. This is a reference to you. And he gave some apostles. He didn't give you one of those. And some prophets. You can make the argument, maybe, but the office of the prophets is gone. And some evangelists. Some people have evangelists. You don't have one. And some pastors. That's what you do have. The Bible says that he gave some pastors and teachers. You, have, you actually have both of those. I, I mean, I like to think that I'm a pastor and a teacher. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? Why has God given you a pastor? A spiritual leader. Ordained leadership. Why? Notice what he says. Verse 12. For. Here's the reason. Here's the reason I'm here. Here's the reason I exist. The reason my position exists. The reason that this task, this job, the responsibility I have as a pastor of Rarity Baptist Church exists. Why? Verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints. Perfecting. Remember, the completing, the maturing, the making whole of you say, what is the job of the pastor? The job of the pastor is to help you become mature. That's why I try to get you to show up to Sunday night church. That's why I try to get you to show up to Wednesday night church. You say, you just try to get us to show up so there can be a crowd for you to preach to. To an extent, that's true, but not for the reason that you're thinking. I need a crowd to preach to because if I can get you to show up to two services or three services, I've got two more chances or three more chances to maybe help you mature. Yeah for the perfecting of the saints. Notice, for the work of the ministry. My job, look, I'm I'm just going to give you all my secrets. My job, what I'm trying to accomplish here is to help you mature, become a complete, whole Christian and then put you to work for the work of the ministry. That's why we have Work Appreciation Sundays and all the different volunteer opportunities and soul winning, all these things. Why? And we want you to help us with the mailers and help us with this. and Why? Because my job is to help you mature and then put you to work for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Notice, for the edifying of the body of Christ. My job is to build up the body of Christ. And here's what I believe. If I can perfect the saints and put them to work, the edifying of the body of Christ will take care of itself. Notice the emphasis. Verse 13. Till, how long am I supposed to do this? Till when am I done? Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Please, please don't miss it. These are not just words that are being thrown in here by the Apostle Paul randomly. He's saying, Pastor, your job is to perfect the saints, to put them to work for the edifying of the body of Christ. How long do I do that till, Paul? Till we all come in the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Here's what he's saying until we are all united, until we've all grown in the knowledge of the Son of God, until we are come unto a perfect, complete, mature man. And when I read that, I think to myself, I'm gonna be doing this for a while. Until, notice, notice, notice the emphasis. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What are these words referring to? Maturity. He's using words that we would use regarding physical maturity. People often say uh, recently about my son, Man, they've grown. My sons have grown a lot. Praise God for it. They're both taller than I am, which doesn't take much, but praise God. (laughs) Wow, they've grown so much. Someone after they see him and they haven't seen him for six months, Man, they have really shot up. What are they talking about? They're growing. They're maturing. Paul's saying, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the fullness of, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about maturity. Spiritual maturity. Verse 14. That we henceforth, notice again the emphasis, what, is the, what will happen when you come unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Here's what will happen. We will henceforth be no more children. Amen. The emphasis, spiritual maturity. Amen. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth and love. Notice again, just the emphasis. Notice it. May grow up in him. In all things, which is the head even of Christ. Now, here's what Paul says. Paul says that we need to have unity. And he says the only way to have unity is for you to grow spiritually. is to mature. Because the measure of Christian maturity is how well you get along with others. This is why Jesus said, don't turn, there." let me just read this for you. Look, you can't get away from this. You cannot get away from this. You're going to argue with me and fight with me, which is weird because I'm preaching about peace, but whatever. <laughs> but you can't get away from this thought, John thirteen thirty five. Here's what Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. No, by, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples based off my Instagram post. That's not what he said. Based off my Facebook post. That's not what he said. Based off the shirt that I wear that says something about God. That's not what he said. I'm not against all those things. I mean, I'm against some of those things. But he said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have loved one for another. Here's what John said, 1 John 4, 20. If a man say, I love God and hated his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Here's all I'm telling you. Christian maturity is based off, it's measured off your conflict or really lack of conflict with others. You there any Ephesians? Go to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. You say, Pastor, why do you say that this has haunted you? Because you would be surprised in a church like this. I mean, this morning, I think we have 199 people here in church or something. Almost 200 people. Got a lot of people sick and out of town, whatever. You'd be surprised in a church this size how much conflict there is in a church like this. And I don't mean that, and please understand this, I... I, I don't think that our church is any worse than any other church. There's conflict in every church. To be honest with you, I, probably there's, there's less conflict in our church than most churches from my experience and what I've seen. But what I will tell you is that there's enough conflict around here to really depress a pastor. There's enough fighting between church members around here to really discourage a pastor. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I don't feel like showing up. Sometimes I want to just give my resignation and say, I'm done. Because sometimes I think to myself, have I so failed as a pastor to teach people to have Christian maturity? That there's so much, I mean, you look at grown people and you think to yourself, you've been saved for so long. You're so old. You're so, you're, can this really be that grown adults would treat them, each other like this? I mean, sometimes I think to myself, this is a joke, Right? Things happen and people say things to me, and and things are brought to my attention. I'm thinking, this, this is a joke, right? There's a hidden camera somewhere. You're going to be like, oh, just kidding. Because I think to myself, those words didn't actually come out of an adult, did they? That thought didn't actually come out of an adult, did it? Can it be? I mean, sometimes I want to ask people, and I don't, because I'm trying to be mature and I'm trying to make peace and ensue it. But sometimes I want to ask people, how did you make it so far in life? How are you not dead? I mean, I want to strangle you. (laughs) How can it be that you've made it this far in life, acting this way, thinking this way, being this way? It's enough to make you want to quit. It's enough to make you wonder, what am I doing? 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 1, And I, brethren... Sometimes it makes me feel better when Paul's struggling too, because <laughs> I think, well, if he's struggling, then good night. Of course, I will. Here's what Paul said to his conflict-driven church members: "And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual." That's how I feel. Sometimes I think to myself, I can't, I, can't, I cannot speak to this person right now like a mature Christian, because they're not. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as, as unto, don't miss it, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. There are some times that my wife and I have to withhold. We think to ourselves, I would have said this, this is what I think they need, but they can't even handle it. I can't even; Those words can't even come out of my mouth yet because their heads would just blow up. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it. And before you think that I'm proud and arrogant by talking that way, I'm just, that's what Paul is saying. You were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, he says, and, you, and you still can't. Verse 3. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you. Now notice what Paul says. He says, you're carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, and ye are not carnal. Uh, Excuse me, he says, are ye not carnal and walk as men. Notice what Paul says. You say, am I a carnal Christian? Well, is there strife and divisions among you in your life? In your marriage, with your children, with your fellow church members, with your neighbors? With your, are you just the type of person just constantly in conflict with somebody? In the Greek, it says drama mama. <laughs> I mean, are you a drama mama? I mean, some people, I think to myself, they, they just like this. I mean, they must like this, right? This is the only comfort. Like something got messed up in their childhood. This is the only comfort. They're only in comfort when they're in conflict. There's something wrong with that. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife. The word strife means fighting and divisions. That's one against the other. Are ye not carnal and walk as men? And you would be surprised. And I'll just be honest with you. I'm actually ashamed and embarrassed sometimes by how much fighting and contention you find in a ministry that has been given to me as a responsibility. And I wonder, have I just failed to teach these things? Because he gave some pastors for the perfecting of the saints, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the work of the ministry, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, the reason that many Christians cannot make peace or be peacemakers is because most Christians are just not spiritually mature. They're just not ready to handle it. And sometimes people ask me advice. Should I talk to this person about this? Should I? And I think to myself, you, can't, you can, not but they're not ready for that. They're just not there. 1 Corinthians 1, look at verse 11. You know, the Bible says, only by pride cometh contention. If you are in conflict with somebody, listen to me very carefully. If you're fighting with someone, I don't care who it is. Your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your siblings, your pastor. If you're fighting with someone, whenever there's conflict, pride is involved. Now, I I did not say that everyone involved is dealing with pride. I will say this, 99.9% of the time, everyone involved is dealing with pride. You're not Job. Sorry to burst your bubble. But there's pride somewhere. Because if there was no pride, there'd be no contention. Only by pride cometh contention. 1 Corinthians 1.11 For it hath been declared unto me, here's Paul, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And that, that, I, could just, I could just quote that verse to you as it hath been declared unto me. That there are contentions among you. Go to Romans 8. You're there in 1 Corinthians. Flip back. Romans 8. Look, you don't have to like me. It's fine. You don't have to like what I'm saying. I still love you, and I'm still going to ensue peace. But you can't argue this. Romans 8, verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death. Carnality brings death, death to relationships, death to potential, death to ministries. For to be carnally minded is death, notice, but to be spiritually minded is life. Don't miss it. Life and peace. Go to Romans 12. Romans 12. Jesus taught on the subject of making peace, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a Sermon on Spiritual Maturity, because let's just be honest, the average Christian cannot have peace. Most Christians, many Christians, maybe I should say it that way, cannot have peace because they're just not spiritually mature. And and, and that's not an excuse. That's not, I hope you don't, okay, well, great, thank you, Pastor. Uh, Now I've got the verbiage. I can't do it because I'm carnal. That's not the point. The point is get spiritual. The spiritually mature person I'm gonna say unfortunately and I don't really mean that, but I just I mean that for me and my wife is really what I mean that. The spiritually mature person side note unfortunately when you're the pastor and you're the pastor's wife, will always be the one who reaches down to the less spiritual person. Romans twelve sixteen, don't miss it. Be of the same mind one towards another. I hope you're getting it. It's unity. Mind not high things. Notice these words. But condescend to men of low estate. The word condescend or condescending in our modern vernacular is a negative term. Usually when someone says they're condescending, it means they're talking down to you. But that is not how This term is being used, and that's not how it can be used. When Paul says, but condescend to men of low estate, he is saying to reach down to, not reach out to. That's a different thing. He says, you sometimes have to reach down to, notice the wording, men of low estate. And then he says this, be not wise in your own conceit. Here's the point that he's making. Don't miss it. Because that is the context in which he says, recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And the unfortunate lesson that I have learned over the last 12 years of ministry is that it's going to usually require the more spiritually mature individual to condescend to men of low estate, to reach down to those that are less spiritual to try to reconcile, to try to take responsibility for their part, to try to make things right. You say, why is that unfortunate? Here's why it's unfortunate. It would not be unfortunate if everybody was spiritual. It wouldn't be unfortunate if everybody was spiritual, because if everybody was spiritual, then everybody would be saying, well, here's, my, here's what I did wrong, and here's where I'm willing to take responsibility. And the other party would say, well, here's what I did wrong, and here's where I'm willing to take responsibility. And then they would uh, apologize and move on. It's unfortunate because of the fact that some people are so spiritually deficient that in order for you to have peace in a church, the more spiritual one has to say, well, I really didn't do anything, but I'm going to esteem others better than myself. I'm going to turn the other cheek. I mean, you think it's, you think I'm joking, but I, I've literally over the years have sat in counseling office. I mean, I've sat with married couples who are just unwilling to take responsibility. Just like, look, I'm not saying that you're... One hundred percent at fault. I'm not even saying you're fifty percent fault, but but no one is. You're not. You're not the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what are you willing to take responsibility? I mean, sometimes I'm telling people, look, let's say that ninety nine percent of your marriage problems are my fault. Ninety nine percent of your marriage problems are me. I failed you somehow. Okay, I'm willing to take that. What are you? Will, no, nothing. I've done nothing wrong. There's no way it's not my fault in any way, shape, or form. And I think to myself. Can grown people really talk like this? Do adults really think this way? How have I so failed you as a pastor? To literally have people in a church that think to themselves, I must be the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because I'm unwilling to take responsibility for anything! It's enough to make you want to quit. enough to make you want to submit a resignation letter and say, find somebody else to do this because I'm not good at it. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you. Live peaceably with all men. I was talking with my wife. She gave me a great quote. She said, sometimes I don't think people understand that you will never have peace in your life until you make peace with others. It's funny because I often hear my wife say this. I often hear my wife say this to our children. We've got six children. Our four youngest are girls and they sometimes quarrel. And I'll hear my wife say to the girls, "Okay, let's say I'm sorry and start over." Okay? All right, it happened. Okay, it shouldn't happen. You apologize for what you did wrong. You, say sorry for what you did. Okay, let's say I'm sorry and let's start over. Sometimes I literally want to just bring grown adults into my office and say, okay, let's say I'm sorry and start over. You take responsibility for what you did, and you take responsibility for what you did, and look at each other. Okay, hug. Okay, okay, let's say I'm sorry and start over. Because what I'm doing is obviously not working. Look at verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, this is is spiritual maturity. Well, they did. No, no, it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You know what a spiritual mature person says when they are wronged. You know what a spiritual mature person says when someone does them wrong, treats them wrong? They say, the Lord knoweth. God knows. I'm going to seek peace, make peace, ensue peace, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. My job is not to mistreat those that mistreat me. Only spiritually mature people can think that way. And by the way, this is why Jesus said, I mean, this is pretty much a quote from the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on Spiritual Maturity, Matthew 5, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Romans 12, 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 14, 19, let us therefore follow after Romans 14, 19, just a couple pages over. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. And the things wherewith one may edify one another. You say, how do we make peace? Here's how you make peace. You take the step to reconcile. And you don't show up saying, hey, you know when you did this. No, you say, hey, I'm, I'm going... I want to reconcile this and there was wrong on both parts. Here's what I'm willing to take responsibility for. And I'm sorry about that. And you're genuine. And you don't give these disclaimers and you don't give these little but this and but that. No, no, no. It's just, here. I'm just, that's it. That's it. There's nothing else to add. There's no other words to put. It's just, here's what I did wrong and I'm sorry. And hopefully, hopefully the other person is mature enough to say, here's what I did wrong and I'm sorry. Let's start over. Maybe they had a mother that taught them that when they were little. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify one another. Go to Philippians, if you would. Philippians chapter 4. You're there in Romans. Go past 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Sometimes people tell me, should I go apologize? And I'm like, no. Because your apologies are more offensive than what you did. The way you apologize, good night. You just leave, leave it alone. You know, when we apologize, we should not make excuses and not minimize. Just say, here's what I did. Here's, I'm, I'm, and look, and that doesn't mean that you sometimes can't confront somebody and say, you offended me when you did X, Y, and Z. But you should be able to do that in a spirit of reconciliation. You offended me when you did X, Y, and Z. Here's my part. Here's the part I played. Here's what I did di- could have done different. Here's what I did wrong, and I'm sorry. So well, what if they don't say it back? Well, then hopefully you are mature enough to say, I will esteem. You don't think that happens? I mean, it's the most awkward thing in the world. You go to somebody that you would honestly think like 90% of the problem was you, 10% of the problem was me. I'm going to go ahead and initiate this thing. I'm sorry. And they just tear you. It's like, whoa, you're crazy. (laughs) I mean, they don't say anything. You don't think that happens? I preached a sermon years ago, things your parents should have taught you to say. One of the things was, I'm sorry, because grown adults, they don't have the ability. It can't come out of their mouth. And I think to myself, how are you alive? That the words can't even come out of your mouth. I mean, you can't even lie. You can't make yourself say, I accept your apology. Let's start over. It's crazy. It's crazy. I don't know what to do about it. Here's the truth: our love for Jesus may separate us from the world. Don't you know that? Luke 12:51, you have to turn there, you go to Philippians. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth, I tell you, nay, but rather division. I understand that our love for Jesus, our stance for Jesus might cause the world to hate us. I get that. But there's no reason in the world why Christian people, believers, church members cannot get along. No reason other than pride and carnality. Period. Psalm 133, 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. We talked about the accepting of peace. We talked about the extending of peace. Let me just real quickly, if you don't mind, talk about the experience of peace. The Bible says that there is a peace that the world cannot understand. Philippians 4, 7. I want you to notice this phrase. And the peace of God. The peace of God. We saw earlier that he was the God of peace. Peace. And we saw earlier that we can have peace with God. But here he says the peace of God. Please understand this. There is a difference between having peace with God and having the peace of God. Those are two different things. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there is a peace that you can have, a peace of God Where can you have it? In your heart and mind. And it's a peace which passeth all understanding. Go to Colossians 3. You're there in Philippians? Colossians chapter 3. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God, Colossians 3.15 And let the peace of God rule in your heart. To the which also ye are called in one body and be ye thankful. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. The Bible says the peace of God should rule in your heart. There's this peace of God which passes all understanding, which will keep your hearts and your minds. It's this internal peace. And there is this peace that you can have that the world does not understand. This peace that when everything is falling apart around you, when the world is chaotic and everything is crazy, and all the church members are fighting. <laughs> you can have this peace inside at least that comes from God. As I was studying for the sermon, I told you I read every single verse in the Bible that has the word peace. I think it was almost 400 verses or something like that. One verse that I came across that I thought was interesting, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read this for you. Isaiah 66, 12. I'd never noticed this. I've read the Bible, of course, scores of times, but I'd never noticed this verse until I was reading it in the context of peace. I'll just read you the first part of the verse, Isaiah 66:12. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. For thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And when I read that, some of you know where I'm going to go next, it immediately made me think of a hymn. For thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. There's a famous him that uses this terminology and I did not realize that it came from Isaiah sixty six twelve. 12 I will extend peace to her like a river but the interesting thing you go to John real quickly John the interesting thing is that this is about experiencing peace in your heart and in your mind there is a peace that the world cannot understand and that peace comes from God let me just read to you real quickly I know it's already I've already been going for an hour let me just read this quickly what we've we'll done in, in a couple of minutes we're not talking about peace with God. I hope you have that. We're talking about the peace of God. And, and by the way, you cannot have the peace of God without having peace with others. That's just a, I, I've, taught, I've taught that a lot. Your relationship to God vertically is connected to your relationship with others horizontally. You cannot get away from that. Your peace with others will determine the peace that you have in your heart. You cannot have peace until you learn to have peace with others. And you have to learn to get peace because life is difficult. Horatio G. Spafford, lived in 1828 to 1888, had established a very successful legal practice as a young businessman in Chicago. He was a very devout Christian. Spafford's fortune evaporated in the wake of the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. Having invested heavily in real estate along Lake Michigan's shoreline, he lost everything overnight. In a saga reminiscent of Job, his son died a short time before his financial disaster, but the worst was yet to come. Desiring a rest for his wife and four daughters, as well as wishing to take part in evangelistic campaigns in Great Britain, Spafford planned a European trip for his family in 1873. In November of that year, due to an unexpected last-minute business development, he had to remain in Chicago, but sent his wife and four daughters on ahead as scheduled on the S.S. Ville du Harvey. He expected to follow in a few days. On November 22nd, the ship was struck by the Loch Hearn, an English vessel, and sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors were finally landed at Cardiff, Wales, and Miss Fafford cabled her husband these words, Saved Alone. Spafford left immediately to join his wife. As he was traveling by ship, it was announced that they would be passing over the area where the SS Ville D. Harvey was thought to have sunk. It is said that Horatio Spafford sat down and took out something to write. As he passed by the watery grave of his four daughters, he penned these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like sea billows, roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. I hope you have peace with God. But you know what I really hope is that you have the peace of God? Because there is a peace that passeth all understanding. A peace that can only come from the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus said, John 16, 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I hope you have peace with God. But I really hope you have the peace of God. And realize that you can never have peace if you don't learn to make peace with those around you. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Lord, I know it's not my job to make people, force people to grow spiritually. I know that. But sometimes when it's clear that your job is to help people mature, and there's just this realization that people are not, they're not as far along as you would hope they would be. It can be hard. But thank you. Thank you for always giving us peace in the heart. Help us to work harder. Help us to dig into the Bible. Help us to learn the Bible, read what it says, apply it to our lives, and grow. And I think we'll be shocked how much peace we can have in our lives. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Matt come up and lead us in a final song. Just let me give you a couple of reminders, if you would not mind. First of all, I always want to remind you to invite someone to church with you.